Welcome to episode 34 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this particular podcast, I take a slightly different approach to how I'm presenting it. This week, I'll be honest with you, I was a little lazy trying to find a guest, so I didn't exactly find one to talk about cyber items of the day. It was an interesting week news-wise in the sense of ransomware continues to run unabated. The Biden administration is creating a task force within the Department of Justice to deal with ransomware. What exactly that will turn out has yet to be seen. You know, most of the ransomware groups are located overseas, so the Department of Justice can do all they want, but trying to get assistance from countries like Russia, China, North Korea to deal with ransomware actors is somewhat limited. But I talked to a couple folks this week on some other podcasts or other webinar-type forums, and so one of those uh, was with Corey Munson of PCmatic. And he was kind enough to allow me to record our conversation on my end as well. So it's not necessarily me asking the questions in this particular uh, podcast, but it's going to be someone asking me the questions. But we talk about a good range of topics that are always important to talk about. Cyber education, the future of cybercrime, talk about ransomware a little bit. And it's a different perspective on how I approach the podcast. So hopefully you'll find it entertaining and useful. And as always, if you have questions about the podcast or things you'd like me to talk about in the future, feel free to email me, Darren at the cyberguy.com. Uh, but this particular interview is a little longer than some of my normal interviews. So we're going to get right into the interview uh, that was I was the interviewee. Uh, and Corey Munson, again, was was kind enough to allow me to record this. So I hope you enjoy it. So let's let's start here, Darren. Tell me a little bit about your your career in the FBI, and was that directly related to, to cyber at the time, or did you have another area of, of focus? Well, it, well, when I got in the FBI, my my direct assignment was this first one of the first cyber squads in the country in Charlotte, North Carolina. And prior to that, I was I was a high school teacher, taught physics and chemistry, and uh, after a couple of years of that, looked down the looked down the my future and decided, you know, I can do this for thirty or forty years, retire and go be a substitute teacher, or I can do something else. So, um, I ended up submitting an application to be an FBI agent, and fortunately got in. And like I said, my first assignment was the Charlotte field office. And at the time, the FBI didn't have cyber squads. We had what were called National Infrastructure Protection Center squads. Which I tell you, I tell you, when you go to a party and you talk about what do you work for the FBI and you say National Infrastructure Protection Center, they say that's great. Where are the bank robber guys? Can I talk to them? That'd be fantastic. So, so it's kind of hard to explain what we're doing. But everybody in the offices knew we were the cyber guys. And at the time, there were only sixteen offices in the FBI of the fifty-six that even had um, cyber squads like this. Interesting. So at the time, was it small-scale cybercrime? It hadn't evolved to what we know today as the big ransomware. Oh, correct. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it was. Racket. There had been some some major intrusions into the Pentagon. Uh, Solar Sunrise, Moonlight Maze, in the mid '90s were big intrusions at that time, um, but they were largely uh, well. Moonlight Maze was actual Russian penetration in the Pentagon. Solar Sunrise was a 19-year-old Israeli kid and two 17-year-old California kids just happened to kind of get into the network and, and, and root around there. So, uh, and Innocent Images, which was a child pornography online undercover operation that continues to this day, was big. But from a computer intrusion standpoint, it was a lot of nuisance stuff, denial of service. I remember I got a phone call about a guy who wanted us to investigate the person who stole his World of Warcraft items. 
online. So, um, and I had in some intellectual property theft, stuff like that. I had a case for five years that started in 2001 to 2006 that dealt with online, the wares community online. So these were the guys that were trafficking in pretty much everything. You think about movies, music, and games, and Napster was big at the time, but there was all sorts of software being traded and for free. And so my undercover was to infiltrate those groups and, and try to dismantle them. Interesting. So fast forward to, 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 to today, one of the things I found fascinating about following uh, a lot of the content you share in your podcast is you do spend a fair amount of time talking to uh, individuals, families, people that aren't necessarily tech savvy about what, what true risk is and maybe helping them understand where they fall in the, the risk landscape. Is that Right. And I think that's the, I think that's the big problem. If like you and me, we, we spend all day looking at cyber news and looking at the newest intrusions and figuring out what China's doing and Russia's doing, but we're an anomaly. Most folks don't think about those things, but they go out through their lives and they're on their phones all their time. They're on their computers doing their social media. So they're constantly in the environment where threats are targeting them. And so I don't think they, they don't think about what those threats are. So my podcast and some of the social media stuff I post online is targeted towards business community to help them understand the threats, but also to the individual because within the company, within any company, uh, most of the cases the FBI worked and continues to work started with a spear fish email. Someone clicked a link somewhere. All right. So that could happen in your business life. It could happen at home. You click a link at home and someone gets in your computer, bad things can happen. So I kind of root this all around. How do I help prevent people from becoming cyber victims? Because I've never gone to a to a victim of a cyber crime. And the first thing they said was, well, I knew it was going to happen. It's just my time. No one thinks it's going to happen to them until it happens to them. And so that's why I try to I have an edu- a master's degree in education and a master's degree in cybersecurity. So I try to blend those two things together. How can I help people understand what the cyber threats are? At least understanding why does someone want my information? I mean, if you're a small 10-person company that makes widgets for the Department of Defense, you probably think, I don't have anything anybody would want. I did completely disagree. Pretty much every piece of military hardware we've ever created has been stolen or attempted to be stolen by Chinese intelligence services, and it doesn't matter the size of your company. They want every little piece regardless of what it is. And the bad guys, the, 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 the criminal guys, want your personal information to scam you or steal from you. I, I started following some guys on YouTube that do reverse scamming, so they call these scammers just to try to mess with them. It doesn't really do much other than it makes for great content, but, you know, understanding how do you become a scam victim of those guys to start with is I think an important piece that is kind of missed. It's, it's fun to watch, you know, you talk to these guys and make fun of them, but there's hundreds of not thousands of people on a weekly or monthly basis that are being targeted by these guys and losing billions of dollars a year because of it. Absolutely. And and we can get into some of that because we, it, it, some of what we track internally and even some of our customers being targeted with it. But, um, one of the things I, I thought was interesting listening to some of your your podcasts is you were talking about the the need for um, maybe collectively as a community for us to help seniors out there that are really being preyed on, and it happens to be a very large percentage of our customer base. You know, we we're a security product, but uh, we have a lot of seniors that are using the product who um, are definitely uh, in the crosshairs of of a lot of these scams. And we, we try to do what we can to get them educated and at least make them uh, uh, better equipped to defend against some of this. But it's it's relentless now, it seems like. 
Well, I think it all goes back to, and this goes back 20 years from when I started, is there's an inherent trust value that seems to be created online for whatever reason. You know, you go to Facebook and you have your, your, your couple dozen friends from high school and some friends from college and other people who connected with you, and you just kind of trying to trust that community you've created online. And so there's that built-in trust factor. And, and for the elderly, it's, it's, you know, they, they may have grown up in a time where you trust your fellow man and things aren't, you know, quite as politically polarized and stuff like that. So you want to, you want to have an, you have, most of us, I think, have an inherent trust of people. And so the bad guys prey on that trust value to get people to give them information that you normally wouldn't. I mean, if I walked up to a stranger in the middle of the street and said, Hey, can I have your social security number? No one's going to give it to me. But for some reason online, you know, if you say, Hey, I'd really like to, you know, yeah, for, for whatever reason, if you can give me your social security number, I can give you $3,000 or, or whatever, whatever the scam is. People seem a lot more willing to, to give that out for whatever reason. I think, it's, I think it's a psychological thing. I've not done any research into the psychology of it. I'm sure someone has, but that's really, I think, the why it's, it's so easy. And, and, you know, the folks that didn't grow up around technology and computers don't understand the threats, don't think about the threats. They just kind of, they're there for information and then to talk with some friends. I mean, the first computer I ever worked on was in 1977. I was 11 years old working on this huge bank computer that my mother was programming for her bank and playing like this little game. And it was just fascinated by the whole concept of computers in general and kind of went from there. So, And maybe to, to drill into a couple of the scams that we were dealing with a lot, um, the the one that we come across almost daily are these tech support scams. Yeah, that's a big one. Where we we even see our own customers, and we again try to do what we can to to provide the correct information. But you know, uh, someone's out there on Google. They're they're searching for help for a particular software platform, whether it's our product or another product. Uh, they ser- they search on Google, and the first thing that comes up is here's an eight hundred number to call for technical support for that product. Great, I'm going to do it. Next thing you know, they're calling who knows where in the world. They're identifying themselves as an employee of that company. And then maybe uh, one thing leads to another. They're remoting into a system and installing who knows what. It, we we track that very closely, and it's something we, we're doing a lot to, to try to take some of these things down. But it's social. It's video sites. It's um, you know any number of domains that are being poached to, to pose as, as mm-hmm. these types of operations. But that's definitely one that, that we see increasingly becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Well, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I fell for that once myself. I was I was going to go to my Amazon Prime account to watch a movie, and I forgot what the address was. So I typed in Amazon Prime Video, and the first link that popped up, I just clicked on it, figuring that was the right one, because heaven forbid Google's algorithm is going to make a mistake, obviously. Uh, and so I put in my username and password. I go, man, this does not look like the right website. But then by the time I realized, after I'd clicked through it, I'm like, that was not right. I should not have done that. So I had to go through and, and reset my passwords. But, I mean, it wasn't in long enough for them to do anything. But it's that same thing. I had a friend of mine call me because his mother had needed had an issue with Amazon and needed to call the Amazon support desk. The first link that popped up when she searched it was a fraudulent site. And they, were, they got her debit card information and all sorts of stuff. I'm not sure why Google doesn't have a way to remediate through all that, but... I don't know what their processes are, but I mean, the bad guys know how to use the system. I mean, chances are they're paying for the ad. If I'm a bad guy, that's what I would do. I would create a fictitious site and pay Google to advertise me at the top of the search link. That's why like the first search, the first search terms that come up on any Google search, I immediately skip by them. And if you don't look close enough, you can't even see that half of them are ads unless you're paying attention to them. So 
the bad guys are always a step ahead of technology. I've always, I've said this for years, but technology moves very quickly. The bad guys are right behind the edge of that technology, figuring out how to compromise it and, and exploit the vulnerabilities. Law enforcement's way behind saying, oh, we probably should catch up to that up there. And then you have the politicians who need to make the laws to protect everybody worried about cow, cow flatulence or whatever else. And so they're not getting around to the, the, the laws that will help deal with this cyber criminal stuff. But that's, yeah. So the bad guys are always on top. I'm, I'm curious on your take. It, it feels like with, with all these data breaches and it's, if it's Facebook or experience, you name it, right. Who, who hasn't been breached these days target. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And, and we're led to believe that a lot of this information is out there to be had on the dark web, pennies on the dollar. Uh, it's, it's being leveraged as part of these, these campaigns. Are, are we moving from where this was once a kind of a spray and pray type of approach uh, to, to, to scam people and now it is more targeted because they have more personal information that they can leverage as part of that that effort. I think it feels like we're headed that way. I think it's absolutely targeted, especially if you look at the number one monetary loss year in year out is business email compromise. How often do you hear about that in the news? I mean, you and I hear about it because we see those articles. Right. But for the general person, if you walked up to ten people, say, "Explain to me business email compromise," you're not going to find anybody who can answer that. But if you ask them, "What's ransomware?" probably 50% know what it is, or at least it's heard about it. Ransomware is like number 12 down the list from a monetary loss. Business email compromise, number one. It outstrips ransomware by six six times the amount. Um, and it's, it's it only works because of the use of valid credentials. And they're not spraying for that information. They, have, they are finding online valid credentials that they're then exploiting to do the business email compromise or get a company, which basically means a company... Uh, email is created that looks like it comes from the CEO, CFO, or someone say, hey, pay this invoice for $50,000, and the money goes out the window based on they've watched, they're in the legitimate email process. Um, So I I think it's absolutely targeted because of all that information out there. I show a chart when I do presentations. It's from a website called Information is Beautiful. And if you just put in data breaches, you get all these bubbles of all these different data breaches going back from AOL in 2003 all the way up to whatever happened yesterday. Uh, and the point I make is, look, if you look at just, just this piece of that chart that I have showing to you, you will find somewhere where your information was compromised, be it Marriott, Yahoo, Experian, Facebook, LinkedIn. I mean, you can, I could sit here for an hour naming data breaches. Your information in some way, shape, or form has been lost. Did you know that occurred? Unless you're going to check haveibeenpwned.com to see what public information is available, I have no idea what's been compromised, be it email, IP address, login, I mean, password, whatever. So let's take the Yahoo data breach for an example. Three billion usernames and passwords compromised. What percentage of that three billion people do you think even knew that their information got compromised? Let's say everybody but 10%. Let's just, it's probably way more than that, but what's 10% of three billion? I asked this question a lot. I never have the answer myself, but I think it's 300 million. 300 million, I think. So of that 300 million, how many use the same password that they used for their Yahoo email for their bank account, their social media accounts, everything else. Let's say another, let's say, just say for the sake of art, let's say another 10%, when it's probably larger, closer to 80%, 10% of 300 million is 30 million. So if I'm a bad guy, I got a, I got 30 million legitimate login credentials that I can probably use across multiple platforms and probably find access to something somewhere. What I, what I sense with, um, and I confess that I don't know the, the exact details behind the whole Facebook 
breach and what a, what all is out there. But my my gut tells me if it's not just simply user account information, if it's a full dump of Facebook level detail, all of a sudden they they have your profile. They they know who you've liked. They know who you don't like. They know what companies you follow, don't follow. Mm-hmm. It, it opens up a slew of options again for for this uh, for for very targeted spear phishing and beyond. So. I, maybe we're just starting to understand or or feel the brunt of of what that's going to mean. Yeah, I will say one thing for that Facebook, the 500 million Facebook data, the, the information scraping campaign that that they mm-hmm. was in the news last week, a couple of weeks. The only reason, and I'm not here to defend Facebook. I don't think Facebook gives a, a a crap about people's privacy and and what they do with it or if they lose it or not. But because of GDPR rules. My guess is in that 500 million were, were European users. They'd have got jammed up pretty badly for for that particular data breach. And I haven't seen any news where GDPR fined them the $1,000 per user account or whatever, unless they did it silently. Right. So I think it's probably some kind of, you know, ability that bad guys figured out to scrape user information, publicly facing user information. Let me put it that way. Because I, I did the test on it for me and my information wasn't there, but... I don't follow anybody. I just use Facebook to go to groups I'm interested in just to get information like on drones or guitars or whatever my personal interest is. So, um, yeah. but who knows? I mean, it's hard, again, it's hard to tell there, especially in the United States. There's no pride. There's no data retention laws or limited data retention laws and no or limited requirements for what you should report. California has a pretty strict one. Um, but again, it's not like they publicly announce it. My biggest complaint when you see, not even a complaint, my biggest concern when you see a lot of these data breaches, especially the ransomware stuff for the schools, is what's the postmortem on that? So you had a data breach, you fixed your problem. Okay, can you tell us how they got in? That would be fantastic to know. What was the methodology for which they got into your network? That helps everybody to say, here was the vulnerability they exploited. I'll give you, so there's one school district, I'm not going to say who it is, but I have knowledge on their particular ransomware. It was not a Spearfish email, which I would have thought it was. It was actually a third-party access. They allowed a third party to come in and do some maintenance on their network and didn't remove that user information. Now, how the bad guys figured out to access that user information to get into the network, I don't know how that happened, but, you know, could have been an insider, could have been a whole lot of different things, but all these ransomware attacks, like the, the city of Atlanta, do we know to this day how ransomware got on the city of Atlanta system? I'm not aware of it. I'd be honest, I haven't right. looked that closely, but I'm not. Uh, was it some, did someone click a link? Did someone put a thumb drive in they weren't supposed to? That would be valuable information to the world at large. But I think it, that's uh, a very interesting topic. It's something that we've talked about for the last couple of years. And, and even as recently as this week, I saw there were some folks at the federal level talking kind of informally about what about an NTSB for cyber events? Mm. You know, somebody, somebody that comes in and investigates and there's complete transparency, maybe not complete transparency, but at least some some level of transparency that everyone can benefit from about what happened and and how to plug, plug that hole. Yeah, I know some of that comes through ISACs to some degree, but mm-hmm. again, it doesn't seem to be like a uniform collective effort behind it. And I think you're exactly right. We don't know what happened in Atlanta. Most of these schools, we don't truly end up fully understanding. They issue, they issue the boilerplate press release about what happened. And then it just kind of fades into the insurance company that's paying the the ransom or whatever is going to happen at that point. But. And I think the uh, one, the one example that must've been really bad, but we'll never know exactly how bad it was, was the whole Microsoft exchange on premises vulnerability issue. Because the 
the the the rapidity with which DHS came out with their their advisory fix these holes and and Microsoft was right there along with it there was a, an an uncommon collaboration between the private and public sector to to fix those vulnerabilities so it must have been really bad at some level uh, and I think we're going to need some kind of catastrophic ransomware event that impacts whole of government in some way for that to really move anything forward but that's that's more of an opinion on my part than any you know actual knowledge but that's kind of 20 years in the government I've it's usually it's not so much we're going to be proactive as, ooh, something bad happened. We should probably fix that. I used to tell a story. I used to tell an, let me rephrase that. I stole a metaphor from a friend of mine who said the way the bureau runs is, you know, it's imagine the FBI as a, as a horse owner. So he, there's a guy who owns 20 horses. One of the horses breaks out of his stall, leaves the barn and runs away. So what does the horse owner do? He shuts the door of the barn and beats the crap out of the horses that stuck around. So, you know, same thing with any of the stuff, you know, until, until that horse gets out of the barn, we're not going to hear a lot about, you know, what we need to know to go forward. If you haven't read the book and I'm, I've been recommending it like crazy, um, it, we're actually going to be promoting an appearance by, by the author, Nicole Perlroth, who New York times cybersecurity reporter wrote a book called, this is how they tell me the world ends. And this is all about, uh, nation state activity related to zero days okay. and how there is more or less a, a marketplace or there a marketplace has grown for zero days and governments are out there buying these zero days and kind of tucking them away for their own personal use. And it's, it's a fascinating look at, at, at how that's evolved and, and how it continues to evolve. And it, to go back to your point about exchange, all sorts of questions. How, how long have we known about this? Who knew about this? Who didn't say anything, um, right? Given how urgent it is now. Well, the average, you know, the average time it takes before you even realize you have a data breach or someone in your system is three hundred and six days. I mean, SolarWinds. That's the SolarWinds perfect example. When did we find out about SolarWinds? Right. January of this year. When did they get in? November of nineteen, I believe, was the the postmortem on that one. So they were in for over a year before anybody figured out there was something going on. Yeah. So. Let's talk a little bit about, and to take it back to you know, the the average consumer at home who's thinking, "All right, all these things are going on in the world. Am I am I really a target? What can I be doing?" Um, one of the things that we really emphasize around here are there are some really simple things that people can be doing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a big investment, even if you're a small business owner. Um, you know, password hygiene, training your employees to to be on the lookout for for phishing attacks. You know, making sure you've got good antivirus software. It, it seems like there's just not a heck of a lot of reinforcement on the fact that many of these things can be prevented. We're not claiming that everything can be stopped, but it seems like a real lack of blocking and tackling too many times. Um, you know, I've had some very savvy cyber people tell me it's almost always a password. Mm-hmm. It is almost always bad password hygiene. Right. And if multi-factor was in place, this this could have easily been stopped. Is that kind of consistent with with the the advice you give that's exactly that's exactly right three 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 basic things i usually say for anybody who just wants a basic protection scheme is have passwords over 13 13 characters multi-factor authentication use a vpn when you're using a free wi-fi really it's simple as that and i think but i think you can actually even boil this down to something more something simpler is that just develop a cyber secure mindset understand that there are cyber actors that want your information 
They don't know who you are. They don't know where you live. They don't know anything about you other than you have something that they want, be it your login information, your bank information, your naivete, really. I mean, the whole thing with we see a lot of these scammers getting people to go to Walmart and buy them $500 in gift cards, and then and they people do it. The whole Department of Internal Revenue Service amuses me to this day when they call and say, we've got a warrant out for your arrest. Keep me on the phone and go to Walmart and give me these credit cards, whatever. But anyway, but people don't think about, think about in general, what I found people, regardless of where they are in their life, if they're retired at home, if they're working for a company, they just don't think about the cyber threats on a daily basis. And companies, I don't think, do a good job of reinforcing the need to do that. I don't think they do a good job of doing education in general because, again, it's one of those, well, I'm not, don't, we don't have anything anybody would want. Well, if you look at the, the average cost of a data breach is roughly $2.92 million per event. That number fluctuates depending on what, where you look, but it's expensive. So what's your cyber training budget? What's it look like? Is it you get a free no, be, you, you know, you, you use no before phishing services every once. I'm sorry, if that's a competitor, I apologize. I don't mean to bring that up. But no, 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 you, you're fine. You use that for, a, for your phishing, whatever, and then you do some training with it. Okay, what's that cost you a year? Cost you, you, you got the, the lowest level, $5,000. And there's a compliance piece that go watch this video for 30 minutes on information security. We've done that. Everybody's good for the year. We don't have to think about it again until next year. Okay. Well, six months, people are going to forget what it was that they trained or looked at because you're inundated with emails all the time because that's still the number one intrusion vector is emails. So how do you develop a mindset that makes people understand or think about these threats all the time? It almost needs an, an additional investment of maybe you have someone come in once a month and just say, okay, for the next 20 minutes, we're just going to talk about why your password needs to be 13 characters. Next month, we're going to talk about why should you have multi-factor authentication? Why do we use it here in the company? And why should you use it outside your life? And here's how you do it. And it doesn't cost you anything. And then the next month after that, you talk about here's what insider threat looks like. If someone comes in and steals all of our information, our stock prices go down by 50%. That's going to impact you as well. So, you know, help them get buy-in. How do you protect yourself from home? How do you protect your kids? You could have a topic a month and only spend 15, 20 minutes on it. But that's going to build that cyber secure mindset for that person because they're constantly at least referencing something that allows them to proceed online daily. Because if you can at least understand the, threats that are targeting you, you can then assess your risk on a daily basis and proceed wisely. Sorry, that's my tagline there. But but um, it has to be reinforced continuous training. You know, the problem with cybersecurity is it's a, it's a loss leader for any company. You're not making money off of it. Exactly. Well, and, and here's the complicating factor that we've been tracking since last March is this shift to work from home. Mm. So if we if we know what you were just saying is is crucial from the smallest of companies on it to the largest of enterprises, and now all of a sudden this mass migration virtually overnight to work from home, uh, some of the some of the research we done we have done suggests that as many as sixty percent of these people are using their own personal devices, which is mm-hmm. giant red That's, flag. Yeah, Who knows how poorly secured <laughs> they are? But we at least our surveys are, are showing that as many as 40% of these people say they're getting no technical support or additional training from their employer while they're working from home. Boy, poorly secured devices on who knows how poorly secu- uh, secured their Wi-Fi network is at home, and they're not getting any additional training. It, it feels like it's a it's a perfect storm if, if this remote work and shift to work from home is going to be permanent. 
And we're going to have to come to terms with what that means if you're an employer or an employee for that matter. Right. And that, and it goes back to the whole cyber secure mindset thing. Again, think about if you're, so you're at home with your 16, 14 and 12 year old kids who are doing school as well. So they all have devices on your wife, on your internal home network, along with your device that you're using to connect to your office. Ideally, your office has provided you with some kind of VPN secure login to the network on that side. That's great. Okay, so that the the point to point connection is secure. Okay, but all of the computers on that home network share information. So they share a centralized network server for movies, music, whatever. But the 16 year old just downloaded Call of Duty, the pirated version, which had malware attached to it, which then jumped off of his computer onto your computer. And so you have that secure connection between you and the business. But the bad guys in your computer that you were sitting there staring at, what does that secure connection do for you? He's got access to your, he's, he's watching what you're doing. It does, it's, it, your, your security is now out the window. And I'm not saying you have to, res, you know, restrict all your users or have multiple networks, but there are ways around that in the sense of creating multiple zones of connectivity in your net. But who knows how to do that? You and I may know how to be able to do that. But if, if I tried to do that and explain to my wife, hey, I need you to connect to this network over here, she'd be like, why? What's the difference? I don't understand. Why do I have to do that? Not to mention uh, a, a friend of mine who will definitely remain nameless walked into his house and in his kitchen is a big chalkboard with their Wi-Fi password. <laughs> For every every kid that walks through that house or any yep. you know repairman that walks in, there, there's the Wi-Fi password right there. How many houses are set up that way? But I I think that is is the fear. How many devices are you connecting? You know, do you happen to have a corporate issued device? Are they providing you with a VPN? Let's hope a, a lot of those things are in place. But unfortunately, I, I think a lot of it isn't in place. Not to mention acceptable use policies from <laughs> right. employers mm-hmm. um, or or even any level of support. I think that's that is what's really going to have to change in the coming. We were hoping we would see a shift over the course of the year. We did a, a survey right around the March timeframe and asked a lot of questions about security at work from home and then uh, basically sent the same survey out last month. And in a year's time, we didn't see much of a shift. Still personal devices, still lack of support from employers. And, you know, the majority of these folks are just sent home to, well, uh, work from your kid's laptop. And like you said, who knows what's been downloaded there, how secure it, it may be. So I think long term, it feels like that's just it's uh it, it's a, glare, a glaring number of red flags that are going to have to be addressed. Yeah, well, not only that, think about, so all these companies that are now doing work from home, how many of them are advertising it as a perk? So I'm a bad guy. I'm like, okay, that company, I'm interested in what they have. All their employees are working from home. All right, let me go on the dark web and see if I can find their email domain and accounts attached to that email domain. Can I then use it to log in? Because if, depending on, if they don't have multi-factor authentication and the login is good, do does the network have that capability to detect a login from John Smith at his house or John Smith from some other device sitting in a coffee shop in in uh, Moscow? How, how they uh, hopefully ideally they 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 detect the Russian IP, but chances are John Smith in Moscow is using a VPN that appears to come from Atlanta, so he's probably okay. But you know, I, my guess is if you're you know, I, I, I mean, there's plenty of companies. If you're if you're less than a hundred person company, what's your IT team look like? One person who can spell computer, and so he's the IT team. How, what's he, how's he securing that network? That, that's exactly right. And and I 
we deal a lot with managed service providers, and mm -hmm. we've suggested this is an opportunity for MSPs, especially to, to help support small businesses that don't have an IT budget, that don't have IT staff. Someone's going to have to go into those homes, maybe even hands-on, and, and take, a, take a look at, at how employees are connecting and what they're connecting through. Um, and, and I think bigger, broader, I've suggested the conversation's got to be about what what is your expect expectation as an employer of your employees now? Are they should they now be expected to maintain a certain degree of security at home? And mm -hmm. is that a prerequisite or a qualification for being employed? Is you have to demonstrate that you're you're logging in in a somewhat secure manner? I I don't know. I think it's a it's a broader topic that. If work from home is truly permanent, it will have to be addressed. Well, it's going to do, it, there's a there, there's a business opportunity there for someone to create policy templates for that exact thing and then sell them, because you know chances are a lot of companies. So the company I work for now, we do a lot of assessments within the defense industrial base, small medium sized companies. You know, half of them don't have policies written down to start with, so there is no policy. I mean, you can if you wanted to, you know, do bad things on their network from within the network. They couldn't fire you for doing it because there's no policy that prevents it. I'm sh I'm shocked still that companies allow employees to access personal email on the corporate uh, corporate computer. Why why even mm -hmm. have that ability to do that? Because we all have phones. You can check your email on your phone. You don't have to check your email at your corporate computer. But who blocks it? Not not many many people. And email is still the number one attack vector. So you're allowing an, an, an extra vulnerability there that is very easy to close off. But that's a, that's a rant that I usually give pretty much every time. So, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned ransomware earlier and let's, let's kind of jump to that because I personally have spent a heck of a lot of time talking about it over the last four or five years and issuing the same warnings that a lot of people were that this, this is only going to get worse and more sophisticated and the ransoms will, will go up. It, is there any sign of this uh, receding or are we just going to continue to see this become more sophisticated data exfiltration and, you know, any number of variables now that are baked into this that are just driving ransoms through the roof. Uh, right. Yeah. There's no, no sign this is going to end. Sure. No, absolutely. Go, go back four or five years ago. What was the, what was the ransom request? 4,000 bucks, 5,000 bucks, maybe at the most. That's what they were asking for. Really, you know, one or two Bitcoin, which was 2000 bucks at the time. Now what is it? Ten million, forty million dollars? I mean, it's it's astronomical. The and I think what they're looking for is what's the max I can get away with. They're, 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 I think the market market value is trying to weave its way into what is an acceptable amount. So if you say forty million, I say no, um, and then then they say, but we'll give you a million. If I'm a bad guy, yeah, I'll take the million. I mean, there was a sure. there was a municipality here in in Alabama that they requested a hundred thousand. They talked them down to thirty. So but they still got their yeah. stuff back. But you're right though. The problem is, and it's again, technology evolves. So does the way the bad guys use that technology. So, and the other problem is, it's not just criminal enterprises doing this nation states doing this now too. North Korea is huge in the ransomware world. Cause I got to fund the regime. And so they're using their, their national security assets to run ransomware attacks all over the place. And you're not as an individual company, a small individual company of less than a hundred people, less than a thousand people, really, for that matter, you can't go up and match your, you can't match defenses against a nation state. Uh, and so, 
you know, the, the ransomware problem has evolved from just these, these criminal groups or these small individuals, you know, on the dark web doing this to these large, I mean, they are organized. They have customer service departments now. So when you pay your ransom and you still can't decrypt your information, they come and help you decrypt it. Or now it's evolved to having the extortion piece. Okay, you're not going to pay us? Well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna release your emails to the world or release your corporate structure, whatever their, their particular extortion means is. Uh, and now the increase in them targeting and not really caring that they're targeting healthcare entities is a huge problem because now you got people's lives at risk. There was a, I grew up in a small area in upstate New York, and there was a small hospital there. They got hit with ransomware. I have a friend of mine who runs a, a security company, and he had to send people in to cut the wires to the doors because the doors wouldn't open because the way that the network was configured, they were all networked in. So imagine for the couple hours they had to spend, if you had someone who had to go to surgery and you couldn't open the door to get to the surgical suite, that's a bad day. So I, we're not going to see it get any better. And why would it get any better? There's no, there's no one, nothing seems to be in place to, to offset it, to mod, to, to make it, less palatable for those guys who do the ransomware. So now I saw today that DOJ is going to start a task force on ransomware. Okay, super. How's the drug task forces working? Have we stopped the drug war? You know, you're not going to stop the cyber war. You have to make, you have to do something to make it unpalatable to them. I don't know what that, I, I honestly don't have the solution to what that is. But a bunch of guys sitting around saying, here's what we should do, but we don't have the authorities to do it and we don't have the tools to do it. That's probably not the way it's going to get fixed. It's going to have to be some kind of cooperation between the private and public sector, quite frankly. And there's going to have to be some kind of authorization given to private sector companies who have more nimbleness to go offensive against ransomware organizations to then make it unpalatable for them to do those things. Well, and it's, it's a viable business model. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, it's cheap. You don't have to be sophisticated to be able to launch an attack. You can sign up for an affiliate arrangement where you can share revenue and get the code that you need. As long as it's a viable business model and it's profitable, it's, it's going to be uh, hopping in two interesting twists. I've recently picked up on um, related to ransomware talking to some of the, the guys in the cybersecurity insurance business, along with some of your uh law enforcement friends um, have have witnessed firsthand ransomware negotiations where this was this was a literal um, um, kind of a timeline of how this happened. They were in the middle of the ransomware negotiation. And during the, the chat back and forth, the attacker actually produced the cover page of the company's cybersecurity insurance policy. <laughs> and they knew exactly what the cap was on that policy. They knew exactly what they could demand. So within the matter of five minutes in the middle of that negotiation, they had tripled or quadrupled the, the demand because they had spent time inside digging around for any documentation they could find of in insurance. I mean, that that's what we're dealing with now. It's, it's sophisticated. They're spending time and they understand what they have. They understand what they don't have. They understand who they're dealing with too. Right. They're not, they're not anxious to deploy the ransomware because the longer they can stay in the system, there's more, like you're saying, the more information they can get. I had a, we had an instance here in Birmingham where a company, we, the FBI had intelligence that a company was being targeted by a ransomware group. And so we contacted and we actually, we saw them actively loading the ransomware on the network. So we contacted the CIO and said, Hey, you have this ransomware group is attack is going to attack you. And they're putting this stuff on and here are the files to look for. And here's how you remove them. 
And so the agent called and said, blah, blah. CIO called me because the CIO had a friend who knew me and wanted to confirm that the agent that had called them was an actual FBI agent. He said, yes, that is an FBI agent, and what they're telling you is true. Um, day goes by, they don't do anything. They don't respond to anybody. So the supervisor of the cyber squad contacts the company and says, hey, not for nothing, you've got ransomware on your system. Um, here's how you take it off. The CIO didn't believe that person was an FBI agent, decided to email the special agent in charge of the Birmingham division to verify all of our names from the corporate email account. Now, keep in mind, the ransomware guys were in their account already, saw the email. The next morning they show up and they're, they're all locked up. So that's why I also recommend one of the, one of the big recommendations I have for anybody is know your local FBI folks. Because yeah. it's, it's better to know them before you need them than after you need them. Well, well here's a question. Given, given your background, then, Darren, and, and I've heard it any number of ways, but is there much the FBI can do? If, if I'm a small business owner and I walk in one day and I've got the ransom demand screen on, should I give, give the local field office a call? And is there much they can do other than maybe pointing me to some? Right. That is, a, that is a great question. And I, and I wish I had a great answer for it. Now I will say, let me, I'm going to step out of ransomware for a second. Say for business email compromise, absolutely call them immediately because they have the, the FBI has an 87% chance of getting your money back within 24 hours. If you report it in time, it's a long process. There's a process that goes through, but you can get your money back that way. Ransomware is a whole different animal because we don't have the decryption keys. Now, in some cases, we may, you know, may have infiltrated groups and got some decryption keys for some of the ransomware variants, but there's so many new ones that come out, they're only good for so long. You know, the the best the FBI can probably do is, is use it for some intelligence gathering, especially for the new type of ransomware, so they can at least, again, come up with what the postmortem of that is. How did they get in? What was the methodology? It's like the example with the one here in Birmingham. We, had, they, we were useful there in that we knew what we were looking at, and we saw a victim being targeted. They just didn't listen. So that's a problem. So we were trying to be proactive. Now, on the reactive side, there's not much. The FBI is not going to fix your systems. Any kind of crime, the FBI is not the remediator for your network. Um, we'll go in and find evidence to try to find the bad guy, to ideally to arrest them down the road. Every once in a while, we get lucky and do find, you know, have cooperation with foreign countries and can find the bad guys. And we do get arrests. But, you know, there's certainly those are the exception, not the rule. Um, and, and we're certainly not going to get your money back, but you know, we may be able to trace through the Bitcoin transfer where it goes to maybe, who knows, depending on what it goes to. If it, if the Bitcoin transfer goes to Coinbase, that then goes to, to an account in Iowa, then we can probably find that guy. But chances are it's going to Coinbase, then it's going to China and then it's going to India and it's lost at that point in the, in the bit, in the, the blockchain. But, um, you know, it's it, at, at the minimum, if you become a victim, it's good to at least contact the FBI because then you at least know who your FBI folks are. Because what a lot of companies happen to a lot of companies is they pay, if they pay the ransom, they then don't go clean in the vulnerability that allowed the ransomware in first. Six months later, all of a sudden everything's locked up again because another group came in because ransomware really is there's now RSPs, ransomware service providers that you don't even have to build the ransomware. You just go buy it and deploy it and get your money. And, and let's not be shocked if you've paid the ransom once that you get reinfected <laughs> exactly. or somebody's coming back after you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're now an even bigger target. The, the other piece of ransomware we, we just recently blogged about that I, I thought was kind of interesting is getting into the data exfiltration side of things and, and what's happening there and how they're attempting to you know leverage that threat of, of publicizing this information. 
and, and I think it has the potential to get even more serious. And this goes back to, if you recall, the dark overlord mm-hmm. cases. Yep. Um, and this tied back here into Iowa, where I'm from, where, you know, they hit the school, got a hold of all the school information, including information about families and students. And when the, sc- when the school didn't want to pay the ransom, they started contacting the families directly and making threats, threats directly against the, the kids. I mean, that was four or five years ago. I sense that that could be where this whole exfiltration piece is evolving to, to some sort of threat beyond just a, a, a ransom demand. Well, I think I, you're, I, maybe I think we're already seeing that. I think we've seen that where they've threatened to release corporate information about the company that's private that they don't that would maybe put the company in a bad light and cause all sorts of other ramifications beyond just the the ransomware piece. So um, it'll be interesting when we get to you know let's say you're in the middle of a heart operation. And the network gets locked up. How about that extortion? Hey, yeah, we'll turn it back on so you can finish the heart, the heart surgeries you're doing or whatever. Or, you know, we encrypted your, yeah. Uh, think of a health machine. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on, on particular health mechanisms, but all the stuff in hospitals are all networked. So, right. yeah. Well, to bring it full circle then, I mean, I'm encouraged because I do think that there's there's still opportunities for people to block and tackle better and mm-hmm. and do some preventative things and not just individually or as a family, but small businesses and heck schools. There, there, there are plenty of opportunities to improve security at schools without investing uh, seriously. But it, it feels like the more uh, conversations like this can happen. Uh, that don't necessarily go too far into the weeds and insist that there's a big need for some advanced enterprise level security solution for everyone. I think ultimately that'll be a plus for for maybe the little guys out there that that can do a lot to take care of themselves. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I'll be honest, I'm trying to do that myself, create, I've created a cybersecurity for schools option, a cybersecurity for churches option. It's really, it's just a, Here's what like, and we haven't even talked about churches, but again, there there's money in churches, and I guarantee you there is limited cybersecurity issues or cybersecurity in churches. I'm, I'm working with my church I go to here in Huntsville, um, and providing them with this training to say just to, and again help your employees create a cybersecure mindset so that they understand that you know people are targeting them for a reason, and just to, you, you just have to take a couple extra steps to protect them. They don't they're not using multi factor authentication. They have the capability to turn it on, but just turn it on and you prevent a lot of these issues. So, I mean, I think there's plenty of educational resources out there that you can use that don't necessarily cost a lot of money. You just have to trust the person that's giving you the information. So, you know, you have to kind of look around for that kind of stuff and yeah. Absolutely. And maybe some of the best ways to find that good information would be connecting with you. I know you're a big LinkedIn guy like I am, but you've got access to your podcast and everything. What's the best way for our community to connect with you then. So obviously I have a podcast called the cyber guy, the cyber guy podcast and cyber is spelled C Y B U R. It's a play on, on FBI, the, in the FBI, if we had a gun or a car that was given to us by the FBI, we call it a bu gun or bu car F for bureau BU. So that's why it's cyber guy. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Darren Mott, D A R R E N M O T T. And I try to post, I haven't done this week's been kind of, I'll be honest, been lazy this week, but I try to post almost every day on different, items of interest. And in cybersecurity month, October, I posted one thing a day. Uh, And usually it's just my take on what that thing is, because you can look at what the media reports from a cyber threat perspective. And, uh, you know, I don't put a lot of stock in 
a lot of reporters reporting on cyber stuff is really knowing what they're talking about. There's kind of given the, you know, the, the nuts and bolts and the guts of it, you know, ransomware, Hey, Broward County got hit with a ransomware, $40 million, sixth largest school district. Okay. What does that mean? Who's doing it? Why are they doing it? What could have been done to prevent it? So I try to give some perspective, a little additional perspective onto what it might mean, what it might mean for others. Um, you know, and, and how do you, how, how can you help yourself from becoming a, a cyber victim in the future? Perfect. Well, here's what I'll do. I mean, from this point, we'll just kind of talk and I'll edit, edit uh, the rest out, but this is perfect. I mean, this is exactly what we need. And I'll, I'll slice this into two, three minute segments, Okay. push them out through LinkedIn and our different social pages. We've got a newsletter that goes out to our entire consumer customer base, which is about north of half a million. Um, so we'll work you into that. So you, you'll get some exposure that way. And I'll just link back to you, tag you in all the posts and man, I'd, I'd welcome your voice into, we've got panel discussions and webinars scheduled all the time. And we're always looking for, for different voices of reason to, to include there. So. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I'd love to do it. I, um, so I, I'll do the same thing. I'm going to stitch this together and put it on my podcast yeah. and I'll, and I'll link to you and it on LinkedIn and we can just kind of post around that way. And yeah, it'd be great. I mean, I, I, cause my whole thing is, you know, how, how many people can I educate so they don't become victims, whatever that looks like. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. And there's, I'm learning more and more, you know, I've been with the company for 16 years now. Uh, there, there are some people that are truly trying to just do good things and mm-hmm. get the right information out there. There's also people that are out there just trying to push and sell crap right. that's not necessary. And, and, um, uh, I think we've done a good job of sorting that out. And we, we like to publicize and promote the people that are doing the right thing. So yeah. I, know I you, appreciate it. You had Scott Angemom on recently as well, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. He, uh, he lives in Nashville. I'm in Huntsville. We've known each other for 15 years. And so I talk to him almost on a daily basis on different things. And we're trying to, we're trying to figure out a way to create that, whatever that educational model looks like. So that people don't have to spend a lot of money to do it. I, mean, I don't know yeah. what no before costs, but I'm sure it's not cheap. Um, and I'm not trying to gouge anybody. I just want people, I mean, there's certain information, like I'm creating a cybersecurity. How do moms protect their kids online for nine bucks? Love it. So stuff like that, but that's my goal. Love it. No, Scott seems like a good guy. I know he's going to be the keynote speaker at a conference down in Myrtle beach, uh, later in the summer. And that's where our CEO happens to be. And we're, we're going to connect him down there. And, um, we kind of talked about that. We at one point we actually bundled no before with our consumer products. So everybody that got one of our licenses got the the basic no before. Um, we've since kind of cut ties, not because they're bad news or anything like that. We just uh, we're always looking for uh, more cost effective ways for people to get access to that stuff. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of good free stuff out there, but sure. I think you know, the 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 right package would appeal to our customers in a heartbeat because they, they do like educating themselves. So. I think yeah, people pay for speed. So, I mean, you can go, you can go educate yeah. yourself all you want, but it's going to take you time to find what you're looking for. So if someone can, can funnel it down, like I'm, so I'm teaching a, at a local college, a cyber criminology course. And mm-hmm. so it's coming to an end and I'm not going back. I'm not going to go back and do it again. I didn't really enjoy it. I, it was all online. I didn't feel the connection with the students and I didn't feel I was yeah. doing a really good job of helping them out. So I, I'm not going to do it again, but I'm going to take all the PowerPoint slides I have and I'm going to create like a basic cyber understanding course. Here's, here's what sure. you need to understand from, from a cyber threat perspective, how I market it. I have no idea. I mean, sales funnels or whatever. I haven't figured that out down the line, but again, it's another hobby I have is creating these educational courses. I just don't know what, sure. to, do. I just don't know what to do with them. So. 
Well, we're happy to promote them along the way, and we've got the right audience for them. These people are hungry for it. Um, you know, I was going to mention, I, I'd heard in your podcast, you mentioned North Dakota, and maybe you had, you had seen that news article about how North Dakota was doing some pretty uh, progressive stuff about educating their citizens on yes, cyber issues. Yes, they created the website for you, for, for it is a cyber education website for any North Dakota and go there and learn. Now, here's the, they partner with somebody who you had to give yes. the email to do whatever that was, the test or whatever it was. So that, that little, I have an issue with it, but I, it really wasn't North Dakota. It was some company went and said, hey, we'd like to create a thing to educate your per- people. Just, you know, use our website here for it, which, hey, got to do something. So, Which I, I think I actually know people on both ends of that. Okay. And I've been up to a couple of conferences that North Dakota kind of state IT put on. They do some really progressive stuff. They've got a, a program called K-20W mm-hmm. where from kindergarten on through you've even graduated college and you're in the workforce, every citizen up there gets an element of cybersecurity awareness training. I mean, That's the right. kids from kindergarten on up, it's amazing how progressive they are. That's and, good. Yeah, They've got some ex-Microsoft people, I think, that are involved directly. I think even the governor might be ex-Microsoft, but... Uh, I, I just had heard you mention that on the podcast and I thought, you know what, you should really to get a chance, dig into it a little bit because yeah. who would guess North Dakota of all states would be one of the more <laughs> progressive about training their citizens. I'd be so, more surprised if it was Mississippi. I'd be more shocked there, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm actually, I'm interviewing, well, speaking, speaking of education, I'm doing Doug, Doug yeah, Levin next week, next Thursday. Doug's great. Mm-hmm. We've, uh, we've been sponsoring his research for about last three or four years and I, I always find it funny because every time a, a school gets hit, he gets uh, referenced because there's not a good source of information about what's going on with schools in, in these attacks. And yeah. I think um, Doug does his own research, but I'm sure he's going to talk about K-12-6, yep. which is kind of this mm-hmm. new clearinghouse, mm-hmm. which hopefully gets us closer to the transparency you were talking about earlier. And yeah, I'm going to ask him about that with all the like, let's take like Broward County as an example. It's 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 interesting. It'd be interesting. I would love to know how did that happen? But like you said, right. we never hear about how did that happen? Cause I have a, so I created this education, this, the cybersecurity for educators quick little, it was like a one hour webinar. So I was looking for somebody to beta test it for me. So I contacted the school I graduated from in New York, the, the superintendent said, Hey, I got this program, you know, I'll do it for free. I just want feedback. I know this is valuable or not. Let me know. Never heard from him. Contacted my college. I went to same thing. Didn't hear anything from him. Contacted our college roommate. Who's a superintendent of a school. He got back to me and said, yeah, we're, I don't need that. Like, okay. So finally found a friend in Florida who said, yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. So it was supposed to be an hour. He gave me 20 minutes at his weekly staff meeting. So I quickly did a quick 20 minute hitter there. But I mean, I can't, it's funny. I can't give away cybersecurity education. It's amazing. No. I was just talking to Doug last week. He, uh, I recorded a session with him that he presented at a conference here in Iowa for Iowa um, IT people for Iowa schools. And one of the things we talked about was for the last couple of years, I was kind of touring the country doing a, my little ransomware, you know, dog and pony show. And I would present to a lot of these IT administrators from schools. And, so, and one of the first things I said is, how much training of your staff do you do? And consistently, I would hear, well, we don't have time for this. Right. We, we've got so much professional development that these teachers have to do anyway. The last thing I'm going to do is book another hour for them to sit down and learn about fish. And I'm like, really? I, I think we're at the point where you can't, you can't afford not to do this. Right. Really. Like I said, you right. don't have to do an hour. Do 10, right. do 10 minutes once a month. Right. At the end of the year, you got you, if you do 10 minutes once a month, at the end of the year, you've done two hours worth of training. At least they're thinking about it periodically. But, you know, I, you know. 
<laughs> yeah. That's um, and, and to piggyback on the uh, personal device uh, issue, IBM was out with a survey, I think a couple of months ago, where they asked teachers, what are you doing for remote learning? Um, do you have a school issued device? Like 70% of them are using their own personal devices for remote learning. I'm like, yeah. Okay. Did, did well, you, good luck with that. Did you see the survey that said they, they did a survey or they did a test of people who had taken cybersecurity training, or I forget the exact methodology, but 62% of them who had taken the training still failed it afterwards? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think I've seen that. And, and I think they came back with some sort of suggestion that it had to be like 20-day intervals. You had to retrain every 20 days. I, I don't remember exactly, but yeah, it might have been similar. So good stuff. Yep. Well, again, I appreciate you doing this. I, I definitely, if you're open to it, I can keep you in the uh, rotation for the folks we try to involve in panels and webinars and everything sure. else. We don't ask you to ever talk about endorsing products, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. It's just more educational, informational yeah. stuff. The more people I can help educate, the, the less victims I have to worry about down the line. Awesome. So that's going to do it for this week's version of the CyberGuide podcast. Again, I thank Corey Munson for allowing me to record our conversation. I hope you found some valuable nuggets in there. And as always, feel free to email me with thoughts, comments, or suggestions or criticisms. I'm good with that as well. Feel free to tell your friends to listen, download, and listen to the podcast. If you have IT folks or cybersecurity folks or people that just want to help keep themselves safe and prevent themselves from being coming the next cyber victim that can find this podcast on all of their favorite podcast options, be it uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I'm on all those things. So feel free to do that. Otherwise, as you go through your week, make sure you understand the threats that are targeting you, assess your risk overall, proceed wisely, and remember, knowledge is protection. Thanks again for listening. Have a good week. <laughs>